Good morning. The issue of coercive control was covered across many programmes this week, with two convictions for crimes that were brutal and horrific. The details of the abuse that these women suffered is difficult to listen to, and for some listeners it will be particularly distressing, so please do bear that in mind. On Monday, a case that was shocking in its relentless ferocity. Paul Moody is a 42-year-old Garda and he was sentenced to three years and three months in prison for a campaign of coercive control. On Monday's Drive Time, Sarah spoke to RTE's crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. Uh, this Garda has admitted to a charge of coercive control. Yeah, that's correct, but there are 19 other uh, charges which were taken into account, including uh, harassment, assault, uh, threats, uh, threats, and including a threat to kill, uh, as well as criminal damage. We heard the details of how the Garda tortured and terrorised the woman. He terrified her family and he isolated her from everyone she knew. We heard he sent her over 31,000 threatening, abusive, degrading and demeaning texts and phone communications. In one day alone, he sent 700 texts and these included foul language, calling her names, threatening her, her family, telling her he hoped she died of cancer and would die in pain. The woman told the courts that he stole her cancer medication which she could not afford to replace and on one occasion he turned up at a hospital she was in and told her he only came to watch her quote bleed to death. The hospital had the guard removed and barred him from returning and we heard he had already stolen her hospital bag before she was admitted. We heard from the woman that she lost weight because of her cancer treatment uh, and this uh, guard that poured milk over the only clothes that fitted her. Uh, he dragged her out of bed on some occasions by the legs, tried to kick her through the doors to get her, uh, beat, punched, choked her on several occasions, locked her in on, on one occasion when she escaped to a nearby house, a neighbour called 999. Uh, Detective Inspector Cormac Brennan from the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation detailed a series of violent incidents including where the guard that stole the woman's car and house keys. He broke into her apartment a number of times damaged walls, furniture, the television, the parquet floor. On two occasions, she ran from her home after he attacked her. She was kicked and beaten by him. Once she was picked up by a passing taxi, another time uh, by a woman who lived nearby. He, we heard he followed her in her car and on one occasion drove alongside her on an M50 slipway, driving erratically, cutting across her, shouting abuse at her out the window. He threw a brick at her car on another occasion. It didn't break the window, so he picked it up uh, and broke uh, the headlights of her car. We heard he took took pictures of her naked unbeknownst to her and without her consent and threatened to put them online and we heard he got access to her Facebook account and demanded she identify each male on it, insisting that some be removed. The woman at the centre of the case was called Nicola and on Wednesday's Morning Ireland we heard her voiced victim impact statement. I felt like my mind was broken glass. I didn't know what was right or wrong anymore because he was breaking my mind. The mental abuse I suffered was worse than the violence. He was beyond evil with his words. I thought having cancer was the worst thing that ever happened to me, but I believe he is worse than any cancer. I couldn't endure any more pain and torture from this man. I considered taking my own life. I can no longer walk past a Garda or a Garda station without feeling physically sick. My time is very precious. I don't know how much time I have left. He has robbed me of so much that I cannot get back. I was ashamed of what I put up with from him. The shame and judgement from other people allows the abuser to get away with so much. I was one of the strongest girls you could ever meet. I always believed I would never let a man treat me badly, be violent towards me. I never believed it could happen to me. 
I now understand why women put up with it. I understand they don't have a choice. Slowly and surely he broke me down. I was not just fighting cancer. I was up against a monster trying to take away my life. I thought it only happens in the movies. Women are afraid to tell the truth. I have survived him with cancer, so I want others to know they can too. I really want to encourage people in a similar position to come forward for support. And there was much across the radio on how prevalent this issue is and what the Gardaí, the state and society can do to address it. With Philip Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. When you look at what the victim of this abuse uh, put up with. You just have to admire her tenacity and her courage to survive it in the first place and then to be prepared to take the case on in court because this is um, a, a piece of... Actually, you also have to admire the Gardaí who really instigated the investigation in the first place. You know, anyone working in the area of sexual violence or domestic violence is hearing about these cases where people are made to feel small, where they're humiliated, where they're over-policed where their power is taken away from them and where they are made to feel ashamed of who they are. On Morning Ireland, Justin McCarthy spoke to Sarah Benson, Chief Executive of Women's Aid, who praised Nicola's courage and resilience and spoke about the very particular nature of coercive control. The offence of coercive control, it's only been in law on the statute book since 2019. I know there aren't many of these prosecutions that have been taken so far. Would you agree that this is significant? Absolutely. Every case at the moment with coercive control passing through the courts is significant because, as you say, it is a new legislation, relatively speaking. It only commenced in 2019. It is a game changer in some respects as as a piece of legislation because coercive control is not about a single incident. It is about a pattern of behaviour. It is about a persistent, um, multifaceted uh, uh, way of targeting somebody to wear them down. And in many instances, it does not have to include physical or sexual abuse, um, although it can. But what you have is often many instances that if you take each one on its own, they may not seem like criminal offences. But when you put them together, you see the enormous uh, impact uh, on the victim. And so, you know, it's, it's a new way of trying to address what is domestic violence. On Drive Time, Cormac spoke to Detective Superintendent Sinead Green from the Garda National Protective Services Bureau. When somebody comes forward um, and says, I am a victim of coercive control, um, how does the Gorda Shikhana go about investigating that, taking the statement from uh, the person and saying, yes, this is coercive control or no, this is simply something else. And I I, I don't want to label it because I I don't know what else it could be. Um, Some people might say, oh, God, this is just periodic or too short a time scale because this has to be a pattern it does not uh, detective over a significant period of time so how do you define and and make sure in your own minds that yes this is a case of coercive control well it's about it's about looking at all the evidence that's there before them and i and i just kind of briefly touched on it there because every case is different um different evidence will 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 form part of each investigation 
So whether that's um, by interviewing the, the, the friends or the family or whether that's by maybe obtaining medical records or whether that's by taking maybe, you know, a, a conversation that somebody had with a friend or, 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 or somebody that, that they know or somebody that they've seen or what somebody has observed or that isolation, that, that all cooperates with that. So the, the, the guard will, the guard that's taking the report, they'll be, ver- they'll be trained and they'll be skilled in dealing with victims of domestic abuse. The case that was highlighted today presented horrific detail but that we see we have seen that abusers will use their occupations to instill that additional fear and control over victims and and families but um like if i can just reiterate that we in angarda shiakana want victims to know that we are here and we are committed to tackling domestic abuse no matter who the abuser is and if there is someone listening now and they are worried for a friend or family member or a victim who is listening and that they've been told that that no one will believe them. I want to assure them here that they will be listened to and that they will be believed. On Thursday, 36-year-old Dean Ward with an address in Gorey County, Wexford, was jailed for 17 years for raping, falsely imprisoning, assaulting, threatening to kill and coercively controlling a woman after invading almost every aspect of her life over a period of six weeks. The woman is Sinead O'Neill from Killybegs in County Donegal and she spoke to David Murphy on Morning Ireland. And her story showed just how easy it can be to end up in a situation you might never have thought possible. Well, he just kind of didn't go away. Like it, I met him on a Friday and when it came to Sunday, I was like, you know, I have work in the morning. Don't you have work? And of course, you know, he had given me a, given me a false name. He didn't actually work, but he had said that he worked in Mullingar and like on a construction site. And he first said that he couldn't go back on the site because he had to take a safe pass course. And then after that, it was that he was on annual leave. So it was pretty clear that I wanted him to leave, but I didn't, I suppose I didn't want to be rude. Like, you need to go. How did you say to him, look, you do need to go? Well, I had said it to him, or I don't know what he said, something about spending more time together to get to know each other. And then he left on, I believe it was the Wednesday, to take the Safe Pass course on the Thursday. And he had messaged me on the Thursday saying that, you know, he would like to come back, but he wouldn't be back until very late. And I said, well, I don't understand because, you know, your Safe Pass course is only up the road in Letterkenny. So I became suspicious then, like, I wasn't sure what to think, to be honest. But that's when he came clean and said that he had lied to me and that he was actually living in Dublin, which, of course, was another lie. But I had told him that at that point, no, I didn't want him to come back. I don't know why he's lying or what's going on, but something wasn't right. But he succeeded in inserting himself into her life and the control began. He got into my social media accounts and... He deleted everything that I was on bar my Facebook. And he said the only reason that he didn't delete that was because that was because I have no signal at the house. That was my only source of keeping in contact with my family. Can you just tell us about how you tried to extricate yourself from the situation? Well, I was very stuck. He was monitoring messages, all my messages. He was tracking my phone. So any messages I was receiving or sending. At the time, I couldn't understand it, but he was able to see them before even I had seen them. And he was tracking 
I think it was through Google, all my movements um, from the phone. And she talked about how she had tried to get this man out of her life. Do you know what? I was just so embarrassed and ashamed of everything that he had done. I didn't want anybody to know. And I had convinced myself that I was strong enough and maybe even smart enough to get myself out of the situation. Now, I had annual leave coming up where I was leaving to go to Cork to meet my family that were flying in from Boston. So I had kind of convinced myself at that stage, all I need to do is to get to Cork, get to my family, and I can figure it out from there. But things became very intense, very fast. And there were so, so many threats on my life that one day at work, I broke down to my boss and told her what was going on. I, I mean, a lot of people are to be credited for me being alive, but initially, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be alive. She went to the guards, but even then she couldn't quite believe that something like this could happen to her. When I seen it all on paper, I got very upset because I just looked at it. First of all, I was like, how have I even survived this? But also there was this element of how the heck is anybody going to believe this? It's so, I don't want to put abuse in the same sentence as normality, but it's so out of any kind of normality. Like they're not going to believe me. It happened to me and I'm reading it and it is just, it's, it's just too much to take in. Like this can't be real. What would you say to other people who've had or perhaps are going through any kind of similar experience? Oh, I would say, please reach out. Do you know, when you're in that situation, you you just think there's no hope. And there's such an awful stigma connected to abuse where, you know, it's the shame and embarrassment. And you shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed. Do you know, the person who's doing this to you should have the shame and embarrassment. There is nothing to be ashamed of. You didn't ask for it. You didn't want it. And I think a big thing is to, it it is being believed. It is being, you know, taken serious. I don't know if it's the training here or I was just very fortunate. All the Gardaí were absolutely amazing from, from the very beginning. I never felt like I did something wrong. I never felt like I should be ashamed. They were just, oh, they were just unbelievable. There's so many resources out there and there's so much help. Sinead O'Neill on Morning Ireland. And if you need it, rte.ie forward slash helplines. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Right, let's get into a bit of this. The 
Derek Doom, a classic, and Jim Lockhart and Barry Devlin of Horse Lips joined the mustachioed one on Lyric. Derek Doom, for anybody who was in a band, and I was, was the, the, the track we all wanted to be able to play, and nobody yeah. could really play it properly except you guys. And it still stands the test of time. And it was a showstopper at the end of a gig. I mean, yeah. it was just. Cleared weddings. Uh, cleared and, weddings. You know, it also it was, got everybody on the floor. It was yeah, yeah. hugely. That, well, successful. yeah, no, it was. And it's still. It's and you know, then it had the. Um, we have to inflict ourselves uh, yes. on the opposing on the team. It would, yes. The Jack period. Correct. And we became, and we kind of, we became like Groove Armada. It was a riff for a bunch of kids. They knew the riff but they could never figure out who was actually it's <laughs> but it's a great piece of music now they're bringing out what apparently is known as a heritage release fancy essentially back up a minibus to pile in CDs DVDs books everything you might want to know about the band and perhaps bits you didn't toenail clippings were mentioned do not ask and the title the working title for it was the complete and utter horse lips <laughs> possibly the right name for it yeah. uh, and but it, it became more than you can chew but they do have form when it comes to innovation the sleeve for their first album happy to meet sorry to part for example Charles took the design from a concert from his concertina, concertina which was yeah. hexagonal and turned it into an octagonal for the uh, sleeve. That would be an ecumenical matter. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, yes, it was. A, it looked like a concertina. And it opened out. It did. Yeah, it, it was did, fabulous, it did, yeah. yeah. And um, an Atlantic, you know, Atlantic signed uh, Amit Erdogan. Amit had a look at the at the this sleeve and went, that's really too expensive. And Michael Deany insisted that that they put it out in that yeah, sleeve. Yeah. And the story is that Mick Jagger, who has just had just, they had just finished Sticky Fingers, and they had the J- Joe D'Alessandro fly on the cover with yeah. a zip. That was the plan. And Amit said, this is just too expensive. We're not having this. And the story is that Mick Jagger wandered in waving the horse lips album and said, <laughs> if a cockamamie Irish band can have an accordion, I can have a zip. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. I got it too. Got it. I got it too. Horse lips with Marty. On Wednesday, an ever so slightly discombobulated Darcy with sex therapist Mary O'Connor. Uh, so this is the final of our sexy summer series with you. Oh, is it? Well, well, no. <laughs> Well, you I'm might be back tomorrow. You I'm might be back fired. No, no. I, but you're like a migrating bird. I know you? I'm here till till November. Oh, are you? Year. We'll have you back in, Jeannie. Mackers, we'll have you back in. Not awkward at all. Unfazed though, they got into it. Now, the question we we we, we put, which is a general question, before yeah. we get the specific questions yeah. from our listeners, is: Can a relationship, in your experience, survive an affair? Right. Um, it can with difficulty because somebody has been very hurt. But it depends whether the affair has been discovered or not. Or, or, that's what I would preface it with. Because, say, somebody has an affair and then for whatever reason it ends and they stay with their original partner. It depends what has happened with, with the original partner, whether they know about the affair, whether the reason for the affair was something had been wrong in the relationship. You know, it's um, it's a difficult one, Ray. They can they can certainly survive. People can cer- certainly survive an affair, but there is hurt. And she was surprisingly frank and direct in her answer to this particular question. But what would your general advice be if, if you've had, say, a one night stand, for example? Yeah, uh, yeah. By, by no means should you ever admit that. Should you not? No. Because all you're doing is shifting the guilt from yourself to the partner who did nothing. 
Right. And you're just saying, oh, God, I feel awful. And you know the way people say if you confess something, whatever your religion, but if you confess and talk about it, it shifts something in your psyche. Yes. So what you're doing is you're shifting it over to the partner who's saying, oh, God, this is what you did to me. Right. And now you're feeling all good because I told you and I'm really, really sorry. And I told you. And now you deal with it. So keep so it to yourself and move so on. So keep it to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I would that uh, I always have gone Yes, that. right. Okay. Yeah. Now that's that's the one I'd stand. Yes, right, yes, yes. Totally as opposed to an affair. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Lest any of you out there were wondering, which I'm sure you're not. Over on Arena, a bit of Shakespeare, The Tempest, which is playing as part of the Kilkenny Arts Festival. And it is Eleanor Methven who is playing Prospero. So, Prospero as a woman, how does that change things? It, well, the interesting thing is, of course, you're reading it with a female gaze and thinking how you feel about life. But she is still, she's still of royal birth and we have to, we have to accept that thing that she believes that is her divine right to rule. There's all that stuff. Mm. But it's, it's a human being, regardless, looking mm. back on their time on this earth, uh, as Shakespeare was at that time, and looking back at what they've done, which is this theatre art, and talking about um, how you let it go and how you pass things on, not only to your daughter, but in your profession. And Methven read an extract from The Tempest from the end of the play when Prospero decides finally to let go of her magic powers. Ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, and ye that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune and do fly him when he comes back. You demi-puppets, that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make, whereof the you not bites. And you, whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew, by whose aid, weak masters though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontide sun called forth the mutinous winds, and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war. To the dread rattling thunder have I given fire, and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own boat. The strong-based promontory have I made shake, and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, oped, and let them forth by my so potent art. But this rough magic I here abjure. And when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. Oh, that was beautiful, from Arena. On Monday, the death was announced of David Trimble. The former Ulster Unionist leader was one of the key figures in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. On Morning Ireland, Conor McCauley, Northern Correspondent, brought us this. In what turned out to be his final broadcast interview, David Trimble explained how the deal had been done in a late-night meeting with Bertie Ahern. We, 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 we had a meeting with him and other senior members of his, his government late in the evening 
and it went right on into the small hours of the next day. And by the time we reached the small hours of the next day, we'd solved the problems. And to get his fellow unionists behind the idea of power sharing, including compromises like prisoner release, was an incredible feat. Former RT political correspondent David Davenpower joined Audrey. He was a man under huge pressure, wasn't he? He needed a bodyguard everywhere he went. There was just relentless vitriol and abuse being hurled at him. Yes, for somebody who had been regarded as something of a political butterfly within unionism, he displayed extraordinary single-mindedness when he attained the leadership. Uh, But he proved to be uh, the single greatest asset of peace in the uh, the Good Friday Agreement talks. I think uh, George Mitchell put it best. He said, uh, without John Hume, there would have been no peace process. Uh, Without David Trimble, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement. And later, Philip spoke to Jonathan Powell, former Chief of Staff for Tony Blair and lead British negotiator on Northern Ireland during that period. You had a chat with him and I think you expressed surprise that a hardliner like him would come as far as he did. What did he say to you in response? Yeah, he was surprised that I was surprised that he uh, was putting everything at risk. And I sort of doubted having known him since he used to come to Washington in the early 1990s. Um, but he said, you don't understand me. This is what I've always wanted to do is to achieve peace. And actually, if you look back at his life, even in Vanguard and everything else, he was, in his way, trying to achieve peace. And uh, that's why I think that this combination of characters, as you say, which is true of Martin McGuinness, it was true of nearly all of the leaders of that crucial moment in Northern Ireland history, they, were, they had two different backgrounds, but they were able to make peace. And sometimes when you look at the current generation of politicians in Northern Ireland, you regret they don't have that same mm. ability. And one of the key peacemakers of that agreement was former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. He joined Audrey on Morning Ireland. The award for John Hume was for 40 years of peace work. Why do you think David Trimble was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize? Um, he made the, the moves, I think, that were necessary to see the vision that John and everyone else, I think, had in those talks. Um, David didn't bring the Unionist Party with him then. You know, we we didn't have an agreement. The agreement was four parts. It, it was loyalism, it was unionism, it was republicanism, it was nationalism. And we needed all four. Um, and unionism was a big part of that. So um, if, if David didn't enter those talks and, and stick with them from September um, 97 right through to Good Friday, then we, we wouldn't have got there. And I think that was acknowledged, uh, the extent that he had to move what he had to agree to in the Good Friday Agreement. It was a comprehensive agreement that had a lot of things that he didn't like, things that he did like. But And I, I discussed this with him only a few weeks ago when I had the opportunity in Queens of spending the evening with him. And, and that it was, it was the question of, do you want peace or do you want it to continue on? And that's how he saw it. And on the news at one with Gavin, former president of Sinn Féin, Gerry Adams. The reality is that he persuaded his party to sign up for the Good Friday Agreement. He negotiated that agreement. And it's to his huge credit that he did that. And I, for one, thank him for that. And while courage was a word much repeated when people spoke about David Trimble, courage and also steely determination, there was also contrariness and often contradiction. Here's Deirdre Heenan, Professor of Social Policy at Ulster University on Morning Ireland. 
in many ways he was simply a bundle of contradictions. You know, we knew him as the hard line Ulster Unionist, the man who was in the vanguard. Those images of him at Drum Cree manning the barricades and triumphantly walking up and down the road hand in hand with Ian Paisley are hard to forget. But he was also a man that was willing to compromise. On a personal level, he was very shy and awkward, reserved, a prickly man. You never knew what you might encounter. You never knew what he might say to you. But a man who, at the same time, gained international recognition on a world stage. I think history will look back very kindly on David Trumbull and see that perhaps he was a man in some ways ahead of his time, that for him to save the Union He realised in an early stage to save the union meant power sharing. And for Bertie Ahern, on a personal level, it was a relationship that might not have started so well, but it did end in friendship. We started off having a lot of feisty, difficult meetings. We ended up being good friends. I admire him for the way he he stood up to to the pressures and pressures internally, externally, and the wider unionist community. Um, But he he stuck by what what he negotiated. And um, as difficult as he was in negotiating, once he he signed off to something, he stuck by it. And on drive time, Cormac spoke to Father Aidan Troy, formerly parish priest of Ardoyne and chairman of the Board of Governors of the Catholic Holy Cross Girls' School, where 20 years ago, loyalists picketed and protested the route, terrifying the young children trying to get to school. But for Father Troy, it was David Trimble's ability to change that was the mark of the man and the leader. I think he'll be remembered mainly for the Good Friday Agreement and also for somebody, I think, who changed. And that is one of the hardest things. And I'm not talking now as a priest preaching, but for any of us to change, it seems easy. I think he travelled an internal journey. And all politicians and all people who ever have to step out of their own comfort and say, I look at what this guy has come up to storm to tell me, that's what I think he should be remembered for, that he was able to get outside of where he had been born, bred, brought up and only thought about and say there may be another way. And these are Trimble's words as he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 1998. That we seem to see in the distance is not really a mountain ahead, but the shadow of the mountain behind, a shadow from the past thrown forward into our future. It is a dark sludge of historical sectarianism. We can leave it behind if we wish. David Trimble, whose death was announced on Monday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Finally, after horse trading on an epic scale, on Thursday, the agreement and publication of the sectoral emissions ceilings. And with so much of the focus on that agricultural percentage, 22, 30, just where would the axe fall? Turned out, 25. And as is typical with the great art of compromise, no one was happy. Here's Pat McCormick, president of the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers, the ICMSA, on drive time. Um, It's very, very disappointing. It's a huge challenge. 22% was going to be a huge challenge. Uh, You know, it's it's a win for for Eamon Ryan. There's an additional 3% there to be delivered. And, uh, you know, it's going to undermine the viability and the future economic viability of the family farm structure that we promote and and display right around the globe. Uh, You know, farmers, I suppose, over the last number of weeks have been castigated in the media. You know, farm policy and government policy of the previous two governments uh, has been to, 
embrace agriculture to deliver for the rural economy and have done so in spades and I suppose most particularly since the abolition of quotas. Um, this is a huge change uh, and it's going to affect uh, the momentum of rural Ireland but also it's going to affect every listener here this evening because the, price, the cheap food era is over. Farmers not happy. What about the environmentalists? Here is Ushin Coughlin of Friends of the Earth. Well, I don't think 25% is enough. We need more from agriculture than 25%. Um, because that means, if, if that's where it sticks now, that means that the rest of society and the economy has to do even more than was planned. If you remember, the government was proposing 30% for agriculture, which would have meant 60% for the rest of the society and economy, for transport, for householders, for electricity. And if agriculture only goes to 25% as opposed to 30%, well, then the rest of society has to go even further, that extra mile beyond the, the million electric vehicles, beyond the 500,000 deep retrofits. We have to go even further. Discontent all round. But is this, as Pat McCormick has said, a win for Eamon Ryan? Did the Green Minister feel like a winner? biting down on the gold medal? There is, though, a huge amount of disappointment amongst your own support base that you haven't got closer to a 30% figure. What do you say to them today? I can understand fully why they would want to go to the higher target. Um, I'd say we have to bring our people with us. And if we did this on a kind of... If we walked away and say, oh... They're hopeless. We can't do anything. They're, uh, we can't agree. Uh, we're doomed. What good is that going to do the environment? You're best to bring people with you by working with each sector, by working with other political parties in opposition as well as in government. That's the best way of affecting change. Politically laudable, but scientifically incoherent because you have the EPA saying to you that only a reduction of 28% in the farming sector would be sufficient to help us meet our targets. So you've You've, you've fallen a long, long way short of the Paris Agreement here, haven't you? No, everything we're doing is based on the Paris Agreement. We set the targets, which are very challenging. Which, you're, which I'm inferring, and I think correctly, you're acknowledging you're not going to meet because you have chosen to bring people with you. No, we are going to. We have set this. These emission ceilings are set to meet that target. And where agriculture is doing slightly less than originally planned, that I would have liked to see it, we are actually going further on the energy side. That, those additional three gigawatts of solar power, that additional two gigawatts of offshore wind converted to hydrogen, the additional money we're going to put into forestry will actually allow us close and meet that target. But no one should underestimate it. It's all saying, oh, talking about it. It's the doing that matters now. And that's what we have to focus on. I know. But if, as they say, the devil is in the detail, let's look at that. There is detail, isn't there? Here's environment correspondent George Lee on Morning Ireland. We've lots of talk and there's no doubt the government is going to do all of this and wants to do all this, but that's the issue. It's where is, show me the plan, <laughs> show, me, show me how we get there. They're all in there, it adds up like that, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't give us the full details. And that's where the Climate Advisory Committee was very, uh, uh, and their chairperson, Mary Donnelly, was, was quite critical. We don't see how this specifically matches the objectives of uh, the carbon budgets. Where are you, what are you going to do each year? Where's the actual specifics of what you're going to do and how you're going to get there? Now, maybe we were asking too much in terms of a, a, an overall policy yesterday to get it. So in fairness, maybe it's on the way. But speaking of Mary Donnelly of the Climate Change Advisory Council, she spoke to David Murphy, also on Morning Ireland. Good to have something agreed, she said, but she had reservations. The lack of detail, as mentioned, and a gap. The targets that have been published yesterday are problematic for a number of reasons. Uh, Firstly, and I suppose most importantly, 
when you quantify it, the numbers do not come to 51% as foreseen in the Act. They actually come to 43%. So we have a gap. We have a gap of about 5 million tonnes. And in this context, uh, the, the government is following what has been done, for example, in Denmark, where they have, call it a black box if you wish, looking for technological and other innovations over the next number of years that will close that gap. So we have a similar situation in Ireland where we have about 5 million tonnes that we haven't actually planned yet which sector will deliver that reduction because we're not too sure what the innovations are and where it's going to come from. And David Murphy punctured through all the targets and percentages and wrangling with this question. How much of this stuff do you think is actually going to be delivered? Well, uh, I believe that we will deliver it, but it's also going to be extremely difficult. Um, When we look at the, the plans at the moment, yes, we are concerned with the implementation rate, One, the the speed at which it's not happening on one hand. And secondly, the intensity of action needs to be increased. And in many ways, of course, the headlines up until now have been focused on agriculture. But we would point to the fact that two thirds of our emissions come from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are costing us a lot of money as individuals and consumers. The target here for our own pockets and for the climate is to get the reduction in fossil fuel usage usage as much as possible and as fast as possible. So the focus we're putting a lot of emphasis on at the moment is to reduce demand for fossil fuels, move to an alternative source for that service so that one, we save ourselves money and secondly, it also helps with the climate action. Mary Donnelly of the Climate Change Advisory Council on yesterday's Morning Ireland. Now for a gear change. Have, have you got the loud hailer somewhere near you? I have the loud hailer. Right, right. It's actually Put, quite it's quite handy for calling them down for their dinner, so I do use it a lot. Um, <laughs> put, the, put, the, put, put the phone onto loudspeaker for a second, please. Okay. And go over the other side of the room with the loud hailer. Now, I'm, I want people to try and imagine you're standing there, legs akimbo, arms outstretched with your speed gun in one hand and loud hailer up to your mouth in the other hand. And what will people hear as they approach you? Okay, so I will possibly be hiding behind a car. So Sheriff McCarthy is not visible. But if they speed by me at 38 kilometres an hour, which is very normal, this is what they'll hear. You're driving at 38 kilometres an hour. Are you aware of that? (laughs) Mary McCarthy, a woman on a mission. She lives in Ranala in Dublin. She went out and bought herself a speed gun and a megaphone. Slow down. Are her kids thanking her for this? They are not. Here's Philip channeling his inner Billy Barry. Mom, would you ever stop us? Uh, no, yeah, the 13-year-old, now he's not to be found out there. Like, if, if his fr- it's his friend's parents and their Range Rover is, like, tearing up some dead. So, um, yeah, he, he is not as enthusiastic. But you know, mind, Not as enthusiastic. I'd say that's the understatement of the year. What, what do your neighbours think about you? I mean, are you, are you a, perhaps a bit of a noise nuisance, Mary? I, now I'm not, I have to stress now, I'm not out there a lot doing this. It's just the odd time. But I, I was out there yesterday and someone shouted, bellowed out from their window, would you shut up, I'm trying to work. So if, if that person can hear me now, I am so sorry. But if cars really slow down and accept us, it's going to take longer to get places. More people might take the bus, more mm-hmm. people might cycle. 
I'd be more inclined to say to my 11-year-old, yeah, do you know what, cycles that cricket match, you know, two okay. kilometres away. She is not wrong. Now, we are almost at a finish here on Playback. Do we have time for some face yoga? Of course we do. Lydia Sass joined Cormac and Sarah. Get ready to gurn, people. A really simple, basic one that you can do is called the X and O. And this one is going to tone and sculpt the cheeks. And it's also going to help to relieve jaw tension. So for people who are teeth grinders or oh, you know, yeah. um, have a lot of jaw tension, this is a really useful one. So... What you're going to do is first sit up nice and tall. So relax your shoulders, make your spine nice and tall so that we've got this lovely solid base to start the exercise um, with. And then we're going to make sorry, <laughs> we're going to make this shape of the word at the letter X. So if you do the most exaggerated shape of the letter X with your mouth, and so you we say the it corners as well. right up. You can say it out okay. loud, but I don't have to. people feel shy to do that. So okay. you can just make the shape of X. And then with, with your mouth, the letter what? O. Yes, make it with X, your mouth. an exaggerated As X if you have a mouth. pencil in your mouth. Is that it? Uh, a pencil. Well, I'm not sure a pencil, but <laughs> this is what he was like, like in school. Catch- We're getting a real insight <laughs> here, Lydia. Sorry, go on. Like go a on. Cheshire cat grin, so an X during the during the sides of your mouth, right up into the most exaggerated smile you can, and then straight from that into the most exaggerated O, like you're doing a real pout with your mouth, and you're going to do that as fast as you can for 30 seconds, so it'll sound like XOXOXOXOXOXOXOXO. Exactly. What does that do, so as Lydia? As fast as you possibly can. You're not doing so it, Cormac. Stop asking questions. What is it? No. <laughs> it, what, I am doing it. It's crazy, though. So what you're going to be doing is taking the muscles around the sides of the face and also the smile lines, and you're going to be plumping and toning those muscles. So what happens is the more we sculpt and tone those muscles, the more they hold up the structural integrity of the face, and it's going to plump and tone the skin that's on top of it as well. So any wrinkles that are naturally in that area are going to be pulled tauter and going to be minimized. But you're also going to get those apples of the cheek back in like we had when we were People will say to me, people will say to me, Sarah, my God, Cormac, your mouth is so muscular. What happened? (laughs) Don't know if that's all they'll be saying to you, Cormac. Well, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. And if you are in a field in Waterford, do throw some shapes. This is the house that Funk built. Groove a style. All right.